scripture reading for today is from John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is the, a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes this morning to the truth of your word. Uh, you would open our ears to hear your voice, the voice of a good shepherd uh, calling to us to follow you. Uh, Father, Pray that um, you would help those who've never heard your voice uh, to hear um, and to follow courageously. Um, for those of us uh, for whom your voice has uh, grown more distant, we maybe arrive here where it feels like we haven't heard you call our name recently. Father, I pray that someone would have this that experience this morning of hearing Christ, the good shepherd, call um, their name, call our name um, with peace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're back into the book of John. We've been in John since uh, February, I think. And um, But after a break, this week I found myself needing a refresher uh, to get back into it. Uh, Maggie and I began a new show um, over July, and she always wants to skip the recap, but I really like the recap. Who likes recaps? Like, I always want to watch that, but she wants to get get past it. Um, I uh, want a voiceover today that says previously in the book of John. Um, although we're watching Succession, so I think the content recap would be a little bit different uh, for John and then that show, uh, which sometimes I feel bad for watching. Um, but like Succession, the Gospel of John is a story. Uh, it has a plot with a beginning, middle, and end. It also has an emotional arc. And so in all four Gospels, there is a tension steadily building until we reach the climax at Jesus' 
death and resurrection. And so when we step out of it for a while, or if we just pick and choose passages, we can sometimes lose the feel of that tension um, if we're not careful. And so before we get into John chapter 10, let's remember for a second where we are in the story, um, both plot-wise and emotionally. Uh, Throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been performing signs uh, in the book of John. He he will perform seven total, I think, this is the sixth sign. Um, he's performing signs, and the signs identify him as the eternal Son of God sent from the Father to save the world from sin and death. Uh, these signs confirm and flesh out what Jesus says about himself in John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the message of Christ. This is the message behind these signs. But unfortunately, Jesus is meeting a lot of resistance, more and more with each additional sign. And so two weeks ago, uh, when we were at Rossi, we discussed John chapter 9 together, when Jesus healed the man born blind. And so to jog your memory, here's a painting of the scene by El Greco. And if you'll notice, there's a lot going on besides the miracle in this painting. You would think that, you know, the painter could have chosen to just zero in on just the miracle, but he uh, paints a bigger scene. Um, And that's because the miracle itself happens rather quickly in the book of John. It's just uh, the first seven verses, Jesus spits in some mud, rubs it in his eyes, he washes it off, the man's healed, we're done, right? But then chapter 9 goes on for a very long time. Um, 30 more verses where the beggar is basically interrogated multiple times, where he has to repeat the story a bunch of times, different groups asking him the same questions. He keeps giving the same answers. Uh, John gives a surprising amount of space to this back and forth. And so the miracle is certainly important, uh, but reading, we realize that perhaps more important is the people's reaction to the miracle. That's what we're supposed to draw from this. And so remember, the miracle is a sign pointing ahead, but we're learning in John how very few people are willing to follow the sign. John warned us about this dynamic in John 1. Uh, John 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is good news, the arrival of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so throughout the book of John, there are going to be two responses to Jesus' ministry, some resisting, some receiving. And John has written that we might be the people who receive. Uh, When you read... uh, chapter 9, and when we read it at Rossi, uh, the interactions with the blind man are so frustrating and sad. Like, you just really feel for him. Um, First, at the get, when he's still blind, the disciples are talking about him to Jesus when he's presumably right there, right? And he's blind, not deaf. And so there, up there, is this guy blind because he's a sinner or just his parents? And you can just imagine him sitting there and, and this habit of people talking about him, um, around him, but not talking to him. Uh, Jesus, of course, corrects the disciples 
Uh, he heals the man. He performs the sign. But even then, the man's harassment isn't stopped. Like, he continues to be harassed. He continues to be dismissed. And so, again, if you look at the painting, you have the crowds to the left, and those are the people debating the identity of the man. Is this the guy? No, but he looks like him. I think that is the man. And meanwhile, the Bible says he kept saying, I am the man. So he's trying to, like, get their attention. And they're questioning him. Are you sure? And then you have the men in the painting on the right who represent the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who interrogate the man twice, doubting his experience, doubting his evaluation of others. You have the parents in the background, uh, frozen by fear of social ostracism, afraid of what the Jewish leaders will do to them if they tell the truth, if they testify to this miracle that has happened to their son. It's all terrible. And for most of the chapter, all the conversation and activity just floats above the formerly blind man. People are talking around him, above him, as if his voice doesn't matter, as if he can't answer for himself what happened. Uh, Rereading the passage this week, though, I notice how at the end he gets fed up. It's really great. And you have this remarkable scene of a destitute beggar now healed, putting the Pharisees in their place. He, he argues with them. He answered them in verse 27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do, do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know, I love that he starts using the royal we, which is really great. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that the man was cast out, uh, returns to the man, and explains to the man how he is the Messiah. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You You realize that he actually had never seen Jesus because he put mud on his eyes and Jesus sent him away to go wash him off. And so he he never actually got to see what Jesus looked like. And so this is his first time getting to see him. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And the man confesses faith in Christ, saying in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and worships Jesus. Uh, As an aside, Whenever I'm lingering on a passage like this, I have a habit of trying to seek out the person's name. Uh, The early church often gives names uh, to these unnamed figures in the Bible, and they'll often give little biographies to them. um, And depending on how widely dispersed the testimony is, it's it's probably oral history, and so we don't know exactly um, the veracity of it, but I'd love learning their names. So according to Eastern and Western tradition, the man born blind is named Celadonius. And one tradition actually has him uh, later founding the church in Gaul, uh, which is France. And I, you read this speech, uh, you see the faith on display, and I just love the thought of this poor man, a uh, poor beggar going on to plant churches in English Gaul. 
um, and you can see it. Um, he could do it. The transition to chapter 10 comes in the next few verses. Um, he said, Lord, I believe, and, and the man worshiped him. And then Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So why does Jesus say this? Uh, maybe the man born blind, maybe Celadonius, was worshiping Jesus, but also asking him questions as the new disciple. And maybe he was asking, why don't these people believe you? What is their deal? Right? They interrogated me twice, Jesus. And I first thought maybe they wanted to be your disciples, and they did not like that. Right? What, what's their problem, though? You're amazing. You give the blind sight. No one has ever done that before. You're kind. You're loving. You teach with authority. You're the son of man. Aren't they the great teachers of the law? And if Celadonius didn't ask these questions, we, the readers of John, are certainly asking this question. What is their problem? And this is Jesus' response. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see me, those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see, as much as Jesus' mission is to save the sheep, it is also a mission to judge unrepentant oppressors of sheep. This is the building tension of John, this increasing conflict between Jesus and his enemies, and, and not really just his enemies, but those who would harm the people that he loves. And Jesus isn't hiding his animosity either. He's having open arguments with the Pharisees. In verse 40, right after this, some, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's a tense moment. This is the setting for John chapter 10. And so I think we should read in these closing words from Jesus in chapter 9 and then into chapter 10, a complex mix of compassion toward some and anger toward others. That mixture of emotions, love and anger, is present all through chapter 10, and we need to let Jesus have both of those emotions. Love and anger are both required for Jesus to be a good shepherd. As the good shepherd, Jesus loves the sheep. And because he loves the sheep, he is deeply angry with all those who would harm the sheep. This is what it means when the Old Testament tells us that God is a jealous God. God's love has heat. It protects what it loves. It fights for what it loves. As should all love when the beloved is threatened. Uh, one of my uh, favorite sermons is a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Excellencies of Christ, and he talks about um, how Jesus is always a lamb toward us and a lion toward Satan, that he is both of those things simultaneously, and we need him to be. Uh, we sometimes wince when we think about Jesus experiencing wrath, but if you think about it, it's really a necessary quality. Uh, if Jesus didn't feel anger, towards the oppressors of his people, does he really love them? Is he a good shepherd if he's tolerant of those who, Christ says, come only to steal, kill, and destroy? B.B. Uh, Warfield wrote, He who loves men must needs hate with a burning hatred all that does wrong to humanity. 
Jesus never wavered in his consistent resentment of the special wrongdoing which he was called upon to witness. Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met with in his journey through human life as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. The man who cannot be angry cannot be merciful. Um, One of my favorite authors, David Pallison, he defines anger simply as that's wrong, I'm against that, and it must stop. And by the end of John chapter 9, that is Jesus' feelings about the Pharisees and the way they're treating this blind man and the way they're treating all of God's children. Now, we know God's wrath towards oppressors is behind chapter 10 because the shepherd thing is shepherd theme is not invented by Jesus. Uh, it comes directly from the Old Testament from Ezekiel 34. And that's really important to the atmosphere and energy of the text because he's talking to the Pharisees who know their Bible really well. Um, they would have sensed immediately uh, picked up on Jesus's reference. So let's hear Ezekiel 33. Uh, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have wounded. And so Ezekiel is writing to the priests during the Babylonian exile, but this is a description of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. It's sadly the description of pastors in every age, often, some pastors. They were not feeding the sheep, but enriching themselves. They were not healing the sick, but scolding the sick, telling the blind man it was his fault for being blind. Rather than celebrating when lost people come back to the fold, they are casting the faithful out. The the Pharisees thought they were the heroes of their day, and Jesus is telling them, you are not God's heroes, you are his enemy. But according to Ezekiel 34, God's not going to just replace these shepherds with another batch of shepherds. He's going to come down himself and be the shepherd. So verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
And so when Jesus announces that he is the good shepherd in John 10, he is declaring himself to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 33. Jesus is none other than the God of Israel, Yahweh, come down to shepherd his sheep to seek the lost, to bring back the strayed, to bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, to feed them with good pasture, to lead them to still waters. But the thing is, as the Pharisees well know from Ezekiel 34, when God comes to shepherd the weak sheep, it also, or it often requires destroying the fat ones. Savior kings must first depose wicked kings. And the time of repentance for, is just about up for them. For them, Jesus has come in wrath, which is why John 39 says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Uh, Ezekiel 34, 16 speaks of God feeding sheep with justice. And that phrase has two very different meanings, depending on who you ask. Justice for the oppressed looks quite different from justice for the oppressor, right? The same twofold meaning is evident here in John chapter 10. In John 10, Jesus is speaking to two audiences simultaneously. Uh, first, you have the Jewish leaders, the wicked shepherds whose true nature is being revealed more and more in the face of Christ. Uh, these are men who profit off the backs of the poor, not just materially, though I'm sure that's the case um, too, but spiritually they are profiting. Remember, they taught that this man's blindness was caused by his own sin functionally putting him down to make themselves feel more righteous just because they were born with sight and he wasn't. And in reality, Jesus is pointing out how they are the blind ones. And unlike the poor man's blindness, who was blind due to no fault of his own, they are culpable for their blindness. So that's the first audience Jesus is speaking to, the religious leaders, the poor shepherds, the wicked shepherds, the shepherds who have their authority only because they stole it. The second audience, is the watching sheep, the crowds. They've been subjected to the Pharisees' leadership for their entire lives, and they're now witnessing a new form of leadership in Jesus. And it's unlike anything they've ever known. Who is this man? Who heals like this and teaches like this and forgives like this all for free? He's not out to enrich himself. Who feeds us but himself goes hungry? Who gives us rest when he has none? And at the end of the chapter, the watching audience is actually divided about what it all means. So verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, the question I have is, why are they divided? There's a lot we could talk about in John 10, but that's the question I want to mull over together. Why wouldn't the crowd, given all that they've seen from Jesus, immediately side with Jesus and the blind man? Uh, most of us can understand the Pharisees' reasoning for res resisting Jesus. They don't want to believe in Jesus because they would immediately lose all the power that they've accumulated. It's succession, but the 31 AD version, right? The worst of human nature on display. But what about the crowd? They're not the worst. They're regular people. Why wouldn't they jump at the chance to get out from under the Pharisees' legalistic, merciless, harsh leadership? 
I think the answer is likely because they were profiting from it too. Not as much as the Pharisees, of course, but for the most part, first century morality for them was workable, right? As long as you're not born blind, it's a net positive, materially, socially, spiritually. The system worked for a lot of people until it doesn't, until it fails, and then you're out of luck. Self-righteousness is like a pyramid scheme where the people at the top make more money, not through actually selling something worthwhile, but by convincing people underneath them to buy in. That's what a pyramid scheme is. And so you don't actually have to be more virtuous. You just have to be more virtuous than that guy. And even if you're not at the top, as long as you can identify a few layers of less righteous people underneath you who also buy into the morality pyramid scheme, your sense of righteousness keeps flowing. It sustains the scheme. But like most pyramid schemes, which are more about hierarchy than producing an actual product, it's a house of cards. And so when Jesus arrives, and he just says, you know what, I'll just take the people on the bottom. And he starts pulling people from the system, even throwaway people. Jesus calls the most worthless people in the society. The beggars and cripples and prostitutes and tax collectors, the people at the very bottom. But because it's a house of cards, it falls apart. In order for a pyramid scheme to work, you need people at the bottom. You need people below you to keep feeding the system. And so that's why people are so threatened and put off by this once blind man, a nobody calling their bluff. Why even he, when even he stops paying into the system, the scheme is exposed and people begin to panic. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? That's such an emotional response. But others hear something different in the words of Jesus and say, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Again, there's a lot that could be drawn from John chapter 10, I encourage you to meditate on it throughout the week and see where the Spirit takes you. Uh, we'll pick up some more themes next week, but I want us this morning to find ourselves in the divided audience at the end. Again, these are people for whom the Pharisee morality system is generally working. And I think that's where John wants us to see ourselves because the reality is that most of us in this room cannot easily identify with the man born blind. From birth, cut off from society. Physically, economically, socially, spiritually even, he's born an outcast. He's born blind while we were born seeing. And that means we, like Jesus' audience, were given at birth enough privilege to buy into one or more pyramid schemes. And then most of us are savvy enough in our life to get some righteousness out of it, to get some self-worth out of whatever system that we have chosen to join. As long as there are people below us, in whatever self-worth pyramid scheme we've chosen, the system works. There were no people below the blind man in the first century, in first century Jerusalem. People were taking from him, feeling good about themselves, but he was at the bottom with no one to take from, nothing to hold on to, no dignity until Jesus came and pulled him out. But that's not most of us. There are people below us, or so we feel. 
And that's true whether you've bought into the evangelical pyramid scheme with church attendance and Bible reading and leadership positions and name dropping or whatever. There are other schemes, correct politics, right? Responsible finances, just be a good person, the best friend, the best partner, the best parent, best employee, best whatever. There's thousands to choose from where we can feel good about ourselves by striving for the right things, feeling better than others in their works until tragedy hits and we realize the money's not there. It's not just a pyramid scheme, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? It's a fraud. Righteousness isn't there, self-worth isn't there. And I think sometimes I wonder, I don't know about you, but is tragedy what it takes to receive Jesus? And do I have to be made so low? Is that what's required to, to be saved, to, to just have nothing left? Are only men born blind able to hear Jesus' voice? And I think there is a way that that's true, um, but I also think it's not completely true because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And that's what's happening among some of the crowd in John 10. A few of them are beginning to wake up to the shepherd's voice. The difficulty for them is, though, in order for them to follow Jesus, they have to leave the pyramid scheme, right? And all the self-righteousness, all the reputation, the social benefits, the power they've accumulated over the years. And not only that, they also need to go and take a seat next to the blind man. Because the kingdom is not a pyramid. It's a flock. And there's no hierarchy in the kingdom. It's just a crowd of people following the shepherd, all needy, all equal, pretty dumb. That's us. That's me. And so maybe you don't have to be born blind to follow Jesus, but you do have to become like the man born blind. You don't have to be homeless. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be a recovering addict, but you have to become like them and brothers and sisters to them. And that's a hard thing for people to do who've successfully navigated other systems. There's a reason that when Jesus said to the rich young ruler to go, one more thing is needed, go and sell everything that you had, that he went away sad because he loved his stuff. And so how do we do it? We let the voice of Jesus win us over. We listen to the good shepherd. What does good shepherding sound like? Good shepherding sounds like the love of God godly love and and what i mean by that is love with authority holy love strong love active love sacrificial love a love a love which gives and doesn't take taking describes the false shepherds of ezekiel 34 they were taking it describes a pyramid scheme right, where people at the top are always taking. I'm being taken from by people above me, and so I have to take from people below me, hoping I end up net positive. But true shepherding is not about taking. It's not a pyramid scheme. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, to take. I came that the sheep may have life and have it abundantly, to give. Jesus asks nothing from the sheep except to follow his voice. Jesus came to save the sheep, to lead the sheep, to green pastures and still waters, to protect them, to even lay down his life for them. 
The Pharisees would never, ever lay down their lives for those beneath them. In fact, it would have felt immoral for them. Wrong, not the way of God, surely, to sacrifice myself for a poor blind man. No way. What a waste. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is doing. What are the moral economies that we've bought into? What are the standards and expectations we live by, the pecking order that we have found ourselves? How did they come into your life? Did Jesus let them in? Did they come through the door of Christ? Or have they come another way? Have they snuck over the fence into your head and heart? Maybe they find in through your family origin, maybe through cultural expectations, careerism, mentor, social media. Are your shepherds, the voices that you listen to on a daily basis, are they givers or takers? Are they protectors? Or do you have the sinking feeling that they would abandon you in the face of danger, leave you to the wolves? Here's a question that struck me. Do your shepherds know your name? John 10.3, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In our culture today, in my heart, I let a lot of people influence me who don't even know my name. Your shepherd should know your name. Jesus knows your name. And this name Jesus knows represents an intimate knowledge. You're not a number. You're not a line on a roster. In the book of Revelation, when Christ sends letters to the seven churches, each letter ends with a promised reward. It's a, a great practice to just go and read just the ends of the, le- the, the letters, all kinds of different directions, but ju- just read the promise to the one who overcomes. And to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2, he says, to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What a beautiful gift. I can't wait to die and on the other side of death hear Jesus say my name. Lazarus, come out. David, come out. It will be like no one has ever said my name before. That's the shepherd's voice. He knows your name. Do you not want this kind of leadership, this kind of shepherding? Don't you want this kind of savior? What are the moral economies that you have bought into? You don't have to wait for the pyramid scheme to collapse for you to come follow Jesus. You can flee from the thieves and robbers who only want to steal and kill and destroy. You can do that now. You can follow him. But you'll have to follow the examples of the sinners and prostitutes and addicts and tax collectors and beggars like Celadonius who've gone before you. You'll have to follow them. John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. The Bible asks us in the audience to not only identify with the blind beggar, it also asks us to see ourselves in the Pharisees. 
Bible says that not only are we weak like the blind man, but we are sinners like the Pharisees, enemies of God. Maybe we're not at the top of the pyramid scheme, but we would be if we could, right? So we should see ourselves in them. Now, how much of our need for rejection is sin? How much is weakness? Who knows? But we don't need to know because both come together in the gospel. Jesus came to save both the weak and sinners. In Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Both weak and ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Pharisees are just those complicit with Pharisees. No matter where we are in the pyramid, which crushes the weak, Christ died for us. Jesus had compassion on the blind man. He was fiercely angry with the Pharisees. And on the cross, his compassion and anger come together so that he's able to save both, to save all, both sick, both enemies. Jesus shows mercy to sick sinners, even to the Pharisees, even to us, if only we will listen to his voice, recognize his love, and follow him in repentance and faith. David Pallison wrote, about God's anger and how it ultimately led to Christ's death. He says, the real God made us for himself. He sustains our every breath and he loathes careful predators and careless killers. He hates the gods people make up according to their own fancy. He made us for himself to love him utterly. So he is jealous, love and anger perfectly united at our immoralities and betrayals. He came as flesh and blood Blown, loving good, hating evil, dying for evildoers, calling all to repentance and life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He freely forgives all who seek him. And so whoever you are, whether you're coming this morning at the bottom of the pyramid with nothing left, whether you're at the top of the heap, the tired, or you're somewhere in the middle, man, leave it behind. What are the shepherding voices that you need to resist in favor for the, of the ways of God? Let him love you. Let him serve you. Let him lead you. Let him die for you. Call him Lord and worship him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the example of the man born blind, Celadonius. Thank you for searching him out. Um, what's amazing in, in chapter 9, he, he wasn't seeking healing. Uh, he wasn't looking for anything, but you found him and you healed him. And then when he was cast out again, you found him again and brought him to faith in you. Father, I pray that you would help us to whatever extent we find ourselves in the crowd, in the rat race, wondering what to do. Father, help us to have faith, have courage, have the gumption to leave it behind, to sit with the blind beggar, to sit with the sinner, um, because that is us, and to follow you to be your sheep. 
Father, I pray that you would say our name, each of our names, that we would have the experience today of hearing you call our name this morning, um, and that we would respond in faith and in joy. We love you. Thank you for loving us uh, so dearly. Thank you for being a good shepherd. In Jesus' name.